Hey everybody, it's Dan Dan, and we're diving into a big book study today. We're doing part two of the doctor's opinion. And in the first part of the doctor's opinion, we learn about our problem is, well, we learn about it from the standpoint of a manifestation of an allergy. And then it's followed by the phenomena of craving, which leads to the obsession to get more and holy moly. And we end up with astonishingly difficult to solve problems. And if it's astonishing to anybody how difficult it is, I would say us. But to others, it's like incomprehensible. And we get into that later. But today, what we're going to talk about is what it is that goes on in us, what it is that we need to do, how is it that AA works to help us get this thing under control. And the truth of the matter is, AA is no self-help program. It is a God help program. We need God's help to do it. And even a doctor, even Dr. William Silkworth, who wrote this letter, is going to agree with that. And what he points out is that at the very beginning, the author of the big book, Bill Wilson, the very first thing the doctor notices him doing is carrying the message to others. So let's get started with the doctor's opinion part two. Here we go. We're on page XXVI, which is 26 for those Romans out there. And here we go. Frothy emotional appeal. I mean, crying and saying, I swear I'm never going to do it again. And being super passionate about religion or something like that. It's not going to work for you. And it hasn't worked for you. And it's not going to work for you. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. So we recognize you're looking for something practical. You're looking for something that's going to work, hopefully sooner than later. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves. There's our introduction to the idea of a power greater than ourself, that there's something outside of us that will help us. And it's uh, ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So there's our target. We want to recreate our lives with a power greater than ourselves so that we can get rid of this phenomena of craving and the triggering of an allergy and live in an unselfish life without the profit motive and an open community-focused spirit. If any, meaning if you or me or anyone feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel, after many years of experience, that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic, means showing concern for other alcoholics in this case, and the altruistic movement now growing up among them. Here's a really important point that the doctor makes next, and it's something that uh, was difficult for me to get at first, and I think it's difficult for a lot of us because I want to blame the reason why I drank on other things, but this may make very good practical sense for you as well. And what the doctor tells us is this, 
Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. They like the way alcohol changes the way they think and the way they feel. We want immediate relief from the stresses of life and alcohol provides it. That's why we drink. It doesn't matter if it's a good day, bad day, normal day. We want out and alcohol provides us that out. He goes on to say the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, how many of you have known you've drinking too much? How many of us have been hung over to such a degree, you know, we're hurting. We know this isn't good. They cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. True from the false. You make a commitment. You don't keep it. Now you believed it when you made it, right? You said you weren't going to drink anymore. You said you weren't going to drink and drive anymore. You switched from liquor to beer and from beer to wine. And you said you weren't going to drink on these days and those days. You made all sorts of commitments to yourself and other people. But somewhere along the way, your mind said, you know what? It'll be okay if I just do it this time. So that's where we lose that idea that we cannot differentiate the true from the false. To them, to us, to the alcoholic, to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one, right? How am I supposed to have fun? How am I going to get by without drinking? I rely on this. It helps me sleep. I drive better. I can calm down. I'm more creative. All these different things may come out. And that's the representation that our alcoholic life, our drinking life, having the effect of alcohol working within us seems like the only normal life. The next line gives us a description that we follow through the entire book, and that is they are restless, irritable, and discontented. Think about that. Constantly searching for a way out and you simply cannot find it. Unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks, which they see others taking with impunity or without any consequences. After they have succumbed to the desire to drink again, as so many do, as I did, and I suspect you did, and the phenomena of craving develops, means we're sort of automatically drinking at that point. We're not thinking about it. We're just sort of like a robot. We're just drinking. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful, meaning we're never going to do it again. God, if you save me this time, I'll never do that again. I swear, honey, I'll never do that again. I need this job. Please, I'll never come to work again drunk, right? that remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. So the psychic change we're talking about is changing how you think and how you act. It's just a reorganization of your mind to move towards what that altruism is, which is that unselfish nature or being willing to make others more important or to work with other alcoholics. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary being that they are required, it's very important, to follow a few simple rules. So the power that is greater than the human power to quit is being introduced to us by a doctor as just follow a few simple rules. We call the 12 steps. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. 
I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that's in him, it often is not enough. One feels that something more than human power, more than human power, is needed to produce the essential psychic change, a power greater than yourself to help you change how you think and act. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, saying that, you know, people do sometimes recover with psychiatric help, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole, meaning they don't have a systematic way. They don't got a penicillin for strep throat for alcoholics. They don't have like a tablet you can take and everybody, you know, 90% of the people that take this tablet somehow get better. They don't have a place they can send you a retreat, you know, go kayak the Amazon river and somehow you'll get better. They don't have that. They don't have that. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. Those of us who got a problem drinking know it's not a problem with mental control. I have had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomena of craving, or we lose our minds, we become insane, and we just start drinking automatically. The phenomena of craving at once became paramount to all other interests, so that the important appointment, the birthday party, the kid's game, the job interview, the important travel, whatever it is, the meeting, the going to see an old friend, the appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. And that craving isn't always like, I got to have a drink. It's a rationalization. It's things like, man, a shot of whiskey will taste good with this sandwich. I'll just have a couple of beers before I go because it's a nice day. It's things like that. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomena of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. So our will isn't capable of overcoming this craving, and we just give ourselves up to it, and we don't even think about it. The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult, and in much detail is outside the scope of this book, meaning we don't need to know the entire medical background or all the physiology of alcoholism. It's just not important. The solution will remain the same. You need not understand that, and that is not in this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon for keeps, right? They are over-remorseful. Men, they grovel. They have that incredible emotional response, and they make many resolutions, but never a decision. There is a type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. There is a type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, I'm just going to quit a year. At the end of five years, I'll be able to do this. That he'll be able to take a drink without danger. There is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. They're using alcohol to manage their emotions, to either settle down the highs or raise up the lows. And then there are types entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. Here's something really important that's next. 
all these, meaning all those types, all these and many others, there's other types, have one symptom in common. This is the thing that binds us all together. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomena of craving. In other words, I cannot start drinking and then by my own will stop. I cannot start drinking and then think about other people and think things like, man, I can only have two drinks or I won't be able to make it home. And and that just makes perfect sense. So I don't drink anymore. I think differently than that. One thing uh, I heard once is uh, the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic both get a DUI and they're sitting in the holding cell. And the the guy that's not an alcoholic is like, oh my gosh, what did I do? My wife's going to kill me. I'm never going to do this again. You know, and they have resolve to it. They've made a mistake and they probably aren't going to repeat it. But the alcoholic is looking out saying, man, I should have gone a different way home. I can't believe the cop pulled me over. I wasn't going that fast. And that's a true thing for me that's been arrested a lot of times for that very thing. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomena of craving. That can't be said enough times because that's what separates us. This phenomena, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. Very important. Next thing. It has never been, it has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. This immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Can I have a beer with pizza though? Can I have not, you know, it it just goes all over the place, right? Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. And this, what's important about this experience is this can be you. If you're new to the program, this can be you. If you've been in the program for a year, no doubt dramatic change is still going on in your life. And a year from now, you're going to be different. If you've been in for 20 years, you've watched this happen over and over again. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in his life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope, so he's hopeless. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. Here's a key line. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but there, all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck, he had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. Contentment, that's really what we're all after. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. By accepting this program, this man, at least up to the time that this letter was written, had had no return to alcohol. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and deciding his situation, hopeless, hopelessness again. 
had hidden in a deserted barn determined to die. How many of us have done that? How many of us have just wandered into the house and said, well, I can't quit, so, you know, so what? He was rescued by a searching party and, in desperate condition, brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment a waste of effort. Unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. And of course, that's never worked. None of us have that. His alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology. There it is, you know, that we're going to train his mind to think about good and bad and right and wrong in a different way. And we doubted if even that would have, not work, have any effect. However, he did become what? Sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is as fine a specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through. And though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. So that's the end of the doctor's opinion. And so we got a couple of questions out of this, right? One of them is the allergy. Having a medical explanation for our condition is somehow comforting for some of us. And the allergy is a really cool one. And there's another side that he doesn't really address, and that's the insanity. Because if I'm allergic to peanuts or I'm allergic to shrimp, I don't have any problem staying away from it. I can be very concerned about that and just make sure it's not there. But some reason this allergy to alcohol blocks out that decision-making process and has me doing things that are injurious to myself. And as I continue to repeat this cycle, I end up in this alcoholic state where the craving comes on. Remember, it's not that I crave alcohol explicitly, though I did sometimes. It's more or less that my mind tells me it's okay to drink. And I do this over and over again, even without being able to recollect the consequences of just the very last time. So I'm going to give you a couple of questions for discussion, and I hope you have a great discussion on these questions. You can discuss any element of this that resonates with you. The first question is this. If I have an allergy and abstinence is the answer, what can I do? What am I going to be committing to in order to be able to maintain that absence? And he talks about it in there. So have a talk with your sponsor about that. And another question is, do you want to live an unselfish life without a profit motive involved? In other words, you're not looking to gain out of this other than this unselfish life. And do you want to become a new part of your community? And another way to ask that question is, are you ready to do the work to restore the relationships in your life that have been destroyed by your drinking? Are you ready to do the work to get yourself right with, well, yourself? Are you ready to make the commitment to be sold on this program, to accept what it has to offer as the examples in the chapter give us? Are you ready to do that? And if so, have a discussion about the commitment you've made or write down with your sponsor the commitment you're making moving forward. You can write that down as like a straight up commitment. You could write it down as a set of goals that you want to achieve. And then one year from now, see if you're not a completely different person.
if you follow through with what you say you're going to do, if you've never kept a commitment in your life, keep this one because this one will be the foundation that allows you to keep all your commitments. And you're not a worthless human being and you're not a hopeless specimen. You have lots of hope. And the solution has been laid down before you right here by Dr. William Silkworth. So I hope you have a great discussion and thank you for spending some time on the doctor's opinion.